You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 85. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy. And it is a wonderful snowy day today in Alberta where this lovely podcast is being recorded from. And my guest today is also from Alberta and she is the newest, although it's not new anymore, uh, member of Holthy Immigration Law. Alicia, how are you? I'm well, Mark. Thank you for having me today. Excellent. Well, how long have you been with the firm now? How long has it been? So I joined in August, and uh, it's been a, a great few months. I'm very happy to be part of the team. And I'm paying her to say that. So <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, the reason we decided to do the podcast today, and uh, for those of you who, um, who don't know Alicia, she is, uh, she's an immigration lawyer. She practices out of, um, out of our Calgary region and uh, Calgary, Alberta, and she's one of the fine Canadian immigration lawyers um, that's with Holthy Immigration Law. And so I wanted to bring her on today because she wrote this awesome blog post that you will find in the description um, of the in the show notes for this episode. We're probably going to do another video too or something just to promote it, but it was a really, really excellent, excellent blog post on spousal sponsorships and not just spousal sponsorships generally, but we do a lot of consults with people that have the potential of sponsoring their spouse from inside Canada or outside. And there are some reasons why you choose one over another. And so um, so Alicia uh, wrote this blog post, which you can check out, like I said, in the description. But that's going to form the basis of our discussion today. So Alicia, what was the brain, you know, this, this, this infused idea that, that came into your brain that this would be a good blog uh, to write and and now to form the basis of our podcast episode. For sure. Well, I've been an immigration lawyer for almost, I think, 17 years now. And so one of the things that comes up quite frequently when I'm speaking with people who are looking at sponsoring their spouse is, do I do an in-Canada spousal sponsorship? Do I do an outside Canada spousal sponsorship? And the class of application actually matters quite a bit. And sometimes, depending on your life circumstances, there's only one option. And sometimes people don't realize that they are stuck with one option. If you have the envious position of having a choice, then it might really make a difference in terms of what's best for you and your family to choose an inside versus an outside spousal sponsorship. So that was what I wanted to talk about because it's something that I end up talking about quite frequently with clients. All right. So we know that there are two classes of applications. So what, what does immigration refer to? What are the classes that they, they identify in terms, like we, most people we talk to, they're like, I want to apply inside Canada or outside Canada, but it's, it's not always that simple. But what we're talking about here is the pros and cons of one of these classes 
And can you give a little bit more background on the two options and then maybe just, you know, what, what they entail? Absolutely. And it is confusing because you don't always have to file an inside Canada spousal sponsorship just because people are currently living inside Canada. You could file a family class application, which is what's also kind of known as the outside Canada spousal sponsorship. So there are two legally separate classes, and one is the family class. And so that's the first um, regular type of sponsorship application. The second is the spouse or common law partner in Canada class. And so it's a separate class under the legislation. We're dealing with a different division in the regulations. Gotcha. And yeah, so there are legally separate choices, um, but they're also known as an inside versus an outside Canada spousal sponsorship. So normally the outside Canada spousal sponsorship is the family class and the inside spousal sponsorship is normally referred to as the spouse or common law partner in Canada class. Perfect. Okay, so we've got these two classes, and um, I'm assuming after practicing all these years that you kind of have this system that you go through, that you walk through with people <clears throat> to help them understand what the options are, but but you know also to settle on the one that's going to work the best for them. So, what kind of factors do you look at or or consider when you're meeting with your clients? Yeah, so one of the key factors is where does the Canadian sponsor reside? So the first thing that I normally ask someone is, okay, who's the Canadian? And you either have to be a Canadian citizen or a Canadian permanent resident. And that matters if you're looking at doing certain types of outside Canada spousal sponsorship. So if you are a Canadian citizen and you are living outside of Canada, and you have an intention to come back to Canada, it's possible that you can submit your spousal sponsorship even while you're still living outside of Canada. If you can prove you're going to come back to Canada by the time your sponsor, the person you're sponsoring, is going to become a permanent resident. So that's one thing. But in general, most of the time, the Canadian sponsor will be residing in Canada. And if you're a permanent resident and you want to sponsor, you have to reside in Canada in order to be able to sponsor somebody. And this is a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. So obviously I do a ton of express entry. And one of the hardest decisions, which I think is cruel and heartless from immigration, I I really, I want to give them lots of shout outs for the good things that they do. But within express entry, people are penalized when they're, when they're in a relationship, when they, when they have a spouse and, and they have often have to make this cruel decision as to whether they're going to list their spouse as not accompanying. So and the reason they do that is because they get more points and then have the ability to qualify through the comprehensive ranking system. And right. if they include their spouse, you know, there's up to, well, there's really up to 40 points that they could have, that they could lose just because they have a spouse that's accompanying them. So they choose to not have them come. And then they're, they're, they're faced with this, with this brutal reality, like you've just identified, that they can't go back and live with that spouse in India or wherever they're from as a permanent resident and sponsor them. They have to be in Canada. And oh, I don't know if anyone from immigration is listening to that, but I hate that rule. I think it's stupid and I don't think it adds anything to the process. So there we go. (laughs) 
And it, it does make it difficult. I mean, the practical reality of that through express entry is is a tough, tough choice for people to have to make. And then if they have to turn around and sponsor their spouse, then yes, there's going to be another period of separation. And so one of the things that I talk about in the blog article too is how long is this application going to take? And depending on which class you're applying under, it might be a little bit faster if you do the family class application from outside Canada. But right now, because of COVID, processing times are about the same. So it's about 12 months for both. And so that's a long period of time that you're looking at to be separated from your husband or wife. Yeah. And often when they come, Alicia, they need to get settled. And I will often tell them, look, you may have the settlement funds, you may have all that in place, but it's really good to make sure that you've got a job that you are, you know, that you you've got some element of connection with Canada that you're settled before you file that application. Now, maybe others may be more risk tolerant than I am, but you know, maybe they don't yet have their notice of assessment or things like that, but we'll get into missing documents in a little bit. I know, you know, I know you're going to address that, but yeah, it's the processing times aren't, you know, they're not always exactly what immigration says they are. There's other added time and and everything that, that goes into the process that you have to factor in. For sure. Yeah, so the first the first factor that I always talk about with my clients is where do you live? And are you a Canadian citizen or are you a Canadian permanent resident? Because if you're a permanent resident, just like we've talked about, you're locked into making sure that the sponsoring spouse lives in Canada in order to submit this application. So um, the next factor that I often look at is who do you want to sponsor? So when we get into kind of the nitty gritty of which class of application are, are they going to file? Well, you can sponsor under both categories, somebody who's legally your spouse. So it's got to be a marriage that's taken place and recognized in the country where the marriage was solemnized and registered. And you can also sponsor a common law partner. So under both categories, a legally married spouse or a common law partner, sometimes people get tripped up because on those application forms, they'll classify their partner as a common law partner before the full 12 months have run. And under Canadian law, you have to be cohabiting in a marriage-like relationship for 12 months continuously before you qualify as a common law partner. So both the in-Canada spousal sponsorship and the family class, legally married spouses, common law partners are eligible for sponsorship. However, there's a third category, and this is the conjugal partner. And so this is if you have marital relations, but you have not actually been able to cohabit continuously for 12 months, you could qualify as a conjugal partner. It's much more difficult to prove But if you are looking at a conjugal partner sponsorship, you're restricted to having to do that outside Canada, the family class sponsorship. It's not a possibility if it's an inside Canada spouse or common law partner class. It's interesting that you you bring that up. I I think of a couple different nuances, and I know we weren't intending to go down this path, but not every legal marriage is accepted by immigration in every country, right? And I think you know where I'm going with this. You know, some countries have the concept of a proxy wedding and immigration, you know, based on policy and otherwise has strictly excluded that from eligibility. And I remember I had a client who, um, it was another weird situation where he was married in Japan and there was this, um, this formality that had to take place to legally 
solemnized like the, the, the wedding and it, I don't even know how to best to describe it. He had to go to a consulate to get this, you know, stamp to, to confirm that the, you know, the wedding was officially done. Um, but he didn't need to bring a spouse. He was able to, to do it on his own. And it was, it was a little bit of a battle. And so there's these little bit of nuances, but generally speaking, without a doubt, if it's legally valid in the country in which the wedding took place, then immigration, generally speaking, is, will recognize that and will accept it subject to those weird kind of nuances. Yeah, and that the prohibition on proxy marriages is important. So it's not you're not able to get married if you got married over the phone or by Skype or teleconference. And that's something that's coming up more and more with COVID yes, right now. Yes, it is. Unless, so the, the caveat to that, there's no proxy marriages unless you're a member of the armed forces. So in certain circumstances, immigration will allow it, but it is very prescribed. It's a very small window. Um, it's a small group of people. The other thing about proxy marriages is that it actually does ask you on the form. So I have a lot of clients who are very confused when they're filling out that family information form and you have to state you know, whether you're married and then how you're married. And one of the options is married, not physically present. And so if somebody's doing an outside Canada spousal sponsorship, if they're doing a family class sponsorship, and let's say the sponsor's in Canada and their spouse is, I don't know, in India, and they say, well, you know, I'm not physically present right now, often they'll say married, not physically present. But what immigration means is, was it a proxy marriage? So you don't ever want to put not physically present. You always want to put that you are physically present for the marriage, as long as that's the truth, of course, when you celebrated the ceremony. And so it is interesting to look at, you know, what are the, what are the details about the legality of the marriage that really can affect your application and cause it to go sideways if you're not careful? Yeah. And so often these are completely innocent oversights. You know, it's just a misreading of the question that's being asked. And the biggest issue that I have is that immigration crucifies people because of it. You know, if they they have the way that they expect you to interpret the question, if you interpret it incorrectly, then, you know, obviously in the context of, of an application that's passed the completeness check, and we'll get past that, you know, they, they you know, there's often fairness letters that come back, but boy, they can be cruel and heartless and people just you know, it's an innocent mistake. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this article. And I'm really glad you're able to do so much, Mark, to try to educate and help people learn more about immigration processing is because if there's a mistake on one tiny little checkbox on the document checklist on a spousal sponsorship, oftentimes immigration will simply return the entire package to the sponsor. And that means that you've probably lost months and months of processing time. So it really does matter in terms of how you choose the type of class of application and how you prepare your application for a spousal sponsorship. And people have no clue. Like they really have no clue what is happening right now. And, you know, with the Canadian Bar Association, which we're both involved heavily in the immigration, the national immigration section and, um, it's, it's interesting to see all of the reports of our colleagues across the country who are now seeing applications returned because there's these massive backlogs. IRCC is frantically trying to meet the minister's uh, expectation that they will be culled out and cleared and processed or whatever um, before the end of the year, which was a very, very lofty statement. And so one of the techniques they're using right now is to return these packages for the slightest mistake. And the consequences 
often unaware people that just don't realize it. If you're someone who's in Canada and you were, say, on a visitor status and you got advice to file your spousal and if you include an open work permit application with it, then you would be able to benefit from implied status and all is great. Well, that's fine. When it was taking one or two or three months to get your acknowledgement of receipt and get the work permit back. But now, because of the pandemic, so many months have passed that if you get your application returned because you did not sign a form, then the consequence is that you may be completely out of status with an inability to restore because you're beyond the 90-day restoration period or whatever the policy is of the day. And I know that you know there are some things that have been put in place to try to accommodate for people that have fallen out of status, but those rules are so narrow and many people are just flat out screwed and people don't understand or realize. Yeah, and so right now it's it's critical that when you send in an application for a spousal sponsorship, it's absolutely 100% correct. The other thing that Mark and I have talked about this before is because of exactly the long processing times and the risk that they might even refuse your application or return your application um, for an oversight, it's a mistake on their part, uh, the risk is that you fall out of status. And so one of the things that might be possible that you would have to do to err on the cautious side is to actually file a visitor extension inside Canada. And that those need to be done online right now. So in addition to the spousal sponsorship, the open work permit, if you're inside Canada, you might also have to file a visitor extension application to change conditions from inside Canada online. You bet. Okay, let's shift gears now. Um, so we've talked a little bit about who you can sponsor as a factor that you take into consideration when you're trying to decide inside or outside Canada. Um, what about appeal rights? Yeah, lots of people don't realize that if you file the spouse or common law partner in Canada class, there is no right of appeal, and that's set out in the legislation. So if you're worried about immigration possibly refusing your application or um, the bona fides of your relationship and they don't believe that it's a genuine marriage, then perhaps filing an outside Canada or the family class sponsorship application is the best bet for that file. Um, so if you want to have an appeal right, then you need to make sure that you do a family class application. And not only that, but when you're doing the family class application, one of the forms you've got to complete is the IMM 1344. And right at the top of that form, it has a little tiny checkbox. And it seems pretty innocent, but it says, you know, what do you want to do if um, this application is not accepted? And one boxes proceed with the application for permanent residence and if you want to have appeal rights you've got to check that box yes you want to proceed with the application for permanent residence so that's really important the other thing to keep in mind is that certain types of family class applications will still not have a right of appeal to the immigration appeal division if the applicant so the person that's being sponsored is inadmissible for security grounds or for misrepresentation so so you're saying, and just to clarify for our listeners, and I know what you're saying, but I'm going to emphasize it anyways, that if you choose to file through the in-Canada process, that there is no right of appeal. There, that's correct. There's no right of appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division. So if you do an in-Canada spousal sponsorship class application, you are only stuck with a possible federal court application, which is not technically an appeal. It's a judicial review. That is so stupid. Why do they do that? Like why? Like what's your what's your 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 seasoned uh, you know 
uh, tenure as an immigration lawyer, why in the world would they do this? Is this just like so, some punishment tool to dissuade people from filing? Like, well, why would they do that? Policy-wise, the reason is they had the, the family class application. It was the way that people ought to normally be filing it. But because immigration recognized that under the Act, one of the objectives is family reunification. And so they wanted to make sure that they facilitated reunification of spouses. And so they created the spouse or common law in Canada class. And because they carved that out as a separate class already, they decided that they would not also give appeal rights to that group of applicants. So, all right, we'll be kind. And because we can't remove you anyways, I actually guess that arose after the act was created. But, you know, because you're you're here and we're going to give you, throw you a bone and let you do this, then there's going to be a negative consequence. <laughs> and, if you, right. and if you're not 100% sure and you can't prove it, then you're out of luck. And so, and I, I don't mean to keep going down these little rabbit holes, but so what do people do if they get their in-Canada application refused? Obviously, with the, with, the, um, uh, with the family class, you have access to the ID and, and that, that process, but what do people do when they get their in-Canada applications denied when they don't have an appeal? Well, first of all, I think it probably happens less frequently, simply because the spouses have been in Canada and if they're choosing this category of application, hopefully they're fairly confident in the fact that their marriage is genuine yeah. and they've got the support to prove it. Um, but if they do get refused for an in-Canada spousal sponsorship, then they are left with possibly filing an application for leave and judicial review to the federal court. Or in some circumstances, they might have to start all over again and show that there's been a material change in circumstances, that now there's something different in their application, and they can prove that it is a genuine relationship. It does depend upon why they were refused, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think one thing that's important to note to our listeners that um, your relationship can be entirely genuine, but if you lack the evidence to prove it, that's what we're talking about. So it's not that, you know, Alicia or I are saying, well, if you think your relationship might be fake, um, you better go the family class route. <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not what we're advising you. But what we're saying is if you're just newly married and you don't have a lot of those documents to show this centralized mode of existence that, you know, the, the, the bank statements, that you live in the same location, obviously under the family class, if you're not in the same country, that's also challenging. But you may just really struggle and not have the same number of documents that normally immigration would like to see. So that's really the what we're talking about, I think, <laughs> isn't it, Alicia? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's difficult is that in terms of the bona fides of a relationship, they're looking at whether it's a genuine marriage or whether it was entered into for the purpose of obtaining a benefit under the Act. So that's another big problem. It's not, um, immigration doesn't have to prove that necessarily it wasn't genuine if they can prove that somebody entered into it for the purpose of obtaining a benefit under the Act. So either way, you could have your application tanked. Um, So genuineness is important. Also, the intention of the parties is important. So once again, to clarify, it's probably not a good decision to indicate in your cover letter for your application that, well, you weren't really thinking about getting married, but because um, you could then stay as a permanent resident, you decided, hey, we're going to get married. (laughs) And submit a sponsorship application. So it's probably not so good to uh, indicate that your intention and the reason you got married was 
to become a for immigration resident. purposes. No, no, that's that's probably not a good idea. All right. Okay. So, what are some other factors that you consider when you're going through this process of deciding? So, the other factor that I ask is, what's the nationality of the person that you want to sponsor, and are they able to? travel. So um, what do they require a visa? Are they from a visa requiring country? If the people, if both parties are in Canada, then a key question is if you're doing a spouse or common law partner in Canada class, does the person being sponsored need to travel outside Canada? And the reason that this is important is because of the wording of the legislation. And so if you look at Regulation 124 of the Immigration Refugee Protection Regulations, it says that a foreign national is a member of the spouse or common law partner in Canada class if, and the first subset, is that they are the spouse or common law partner of a sponsor and they cohabit with that sponsor in Canada. And so technically... If somebody leaves Canada, let's say it's taking a year for that in-Canada class application to be processed, let's say something happens to their family and they need to travel overseas to deal with um, a funeral or an estate or family matters, then it's possible that this whole in-Canada class application could be refused and people would have to start all over from the very beginning and file a new application. Mark and I talk about this. I'm uh, more risk averse and I worry about things like this. He says that he doesn't often see it happening in practice, but it is something that I wanted to raise. It's really important to raise it. Absolutely, Alicia. And I think it comes from the days I worked on the border. And, um, you know, these are the days when even a relationship that started online uh, was really considered to be questionable. And um, when we had a situation where couples were, were married or, well, in most cases, that's what, that's what it was, and a spouse was outside of Canada, our concern was more that they were going to you know, get with the picture and get the application filed so they weren't just hanging out forever, um, you know, not taking uh, forward action towards their PR. That was more the question or the problem that most of the officers had than, you know, we're not going to let you back in when you have a, a spouse on, you know, within Canada. But there is absolutely a risk, right? And if you're someone who comes from a visa-required country, that's a big factor when you're choosing to leave and re-enter. Um, but it's still there even for the visa-exempt folks as well. Yeah. And so one of the things is even in the manuals, it says applicants who leave Canada before a final decision is made on their application for permanent residence under that in-Canada spousal category, it says there's no guarantee Beware. that foreign nationals who've left Canada will be allowed to re-enter. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So that's one thing to consider is if you're doing an Inside Canada class application, and especially now because of COVID, um, people are getting stuck outside of Canada. So if they were in Canada and they have to go home for a certain reason, they may not be able to come back inside Canada because of travel restrictions or um, possibly because they haven't had a marriage certificate that's been finally issued yet. So that's another thing that's come up. Even if you get married right now in Canada, it's taking a long time to get that marriage certificate. So depending on which province you've gotten married in, it has to go to the authorities in that province to get uh, registered, and then you finally get your certificate back. And sometimes people get stuck outside of Canada if they've actually gone through that marriage ceremony but haven't been able to get that marriage certificate back because it's taking so long right now through the provinces. That makes sense. So it's 
one thing to be aware of. The other question that often comes up in terms of travel is if you're doing a family class application, so the Canadian sponsor is inside Canada, living in Canada, and the person they want to sponsor, let's say they're in the U.S. and they live in the U.S., and they often ask, well, can my spouse visit me in Canada? Can they travel to Canada? And the answer may be very well maybe yes if they qualify and they're able to normally come to Canada for a visit and if they meet the travel restriction exemptions and you're legally married then maybe you'll be able to come to Canada so just because you're doing a family class outside Canada application doesn't necessarily mean that that spouse wouldn't be allowed to enter as a visitor or possibly under a work permit or study permit if they regularly qualify for either of those applications. You know, it's interesting as we watch what's happened with this pandemic and the spouses that have been separated for months and months and months. We, I think it was Chantelle Deloge in the appearance that she did before the Standing Committee on the impact of COVID on immigration systems. And I, I had the privilege of attending and presenting evidence myself. But she described, and I'm not sure if it came from her, one of her colleagues that she had consulted with, the, the, the kiss of death that exists when an individual has a spousal sponsorship in the queue family class and are then applying for a temporary resident visa and how frequently immigration ignores the concept of dual intent uh, that you can also have an intention to abide by temporary conditions if you demonstrate an intention to reside permanently in Canada by filing a family class application. Just how in, in many, many countries it's almost, you know, it's almost a kiss of death that you're not going to get that that TRV approved. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is one of the, it's it's showing its face more and more now because of the length that families are being forced to be separated, which is really, really tough. Um, but one of the things that I tell a lot of my clients, Alicia, is that if you're at the stage where you have not yet submitted that sponsorship, or even if you're still at the boyfriend-girlfriend stage thinking about getting married, well, and obviously the pandemic affects this advice because you can't just apply for a visitor visa and come to Canada now. At least you can't travel. I always advise them if they're thinking about going down that road that they apply for the visitor visa and get that in place before they submit the sponsorship. And uh, sometimes that can help as well and, and can even help to open up other options if they do choose to, to file that from within Canada. And that is a good point too, Mark, because definitely the country of nationality of the person being sponsored matters. And for most countries other than the United States, so if you happen to be a citizen of the United States and you want to be sponsored to Canada as a spouse, you might be okay trying to apply for a visitor visa after the marriage. But I would agree with you. In most circumstances, it's really, really difficult to get a visitor visa after the spousal sponsorship's been filed because one of the main requirements for a visitor visa is to have temporary intent. And you're absolutely correct. There is a policy on spouses being able to put evidence forward of dual intent, meaning that, yes, they want to become a permanent resident, but they also maintain a valid temporary intent that they could go back to their country of nationality. The other thing that you raised that's important is that fiancé. So sometimes people still think that there might be some sort of fiancé class in terms of spousal sponsorships, and there is not. So it's either got to be a legal marriage, common law partners, or a conjugal partner if you're looking at a family class application. And I know some people may be confused by some of the more recent announcements from the government during this pandemic to help facilitate the entry, the temporary entry of of, um, of fiancés or those 
for which you you're in a committed relationship, and I can't remember all the terminology of it. And I'm I think sure, they say long term dating relationship. Is, is that yeah. what it is? Long term dating relationship. So don't confuse that with an ability, you know, to to sponsor under under one of the uh, spousal classes. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So um, another issue that comes up is how soon can I work? So how does that play a role in this? So some people think that they're eligible to apply for an open spousal work permit if they've put in a spousal sponsorship. And that's only true if it's a spouse inside Canada class application and generally if the person being sponsored has valid temporary status in Canada. So there is no ability to apply for an open work permit if you are applying under the family class from outside Canada. Okay. And that I think that's something that a lot of people ask, especially if you're in Canada and and obviously once again we come we're releasing still in the midst of the pandemic even though the you know, there's, there's, uh, we're starting to see the vaccine start to be released in some countries. Um, COVID still impacts all of this. And one of the challenges is when you do come to Canada and you're here in the past, we would maybe see about four months that you'd have to wait for your open work permit to come if you filed through the in Canada class. But, you know, we've seen that stretch to seven, eight, nine months and more because of what's happening now. So you have to factor that in as well when you're trying to decide, well, do I need to stay here in Canada? Is it, you know, does it make more sense for me to go back home because then I can work there and, uh, you know, provide for the family. So there's a number of different, uh, different factors. And I know Alicia, you, you had addressed processing time already, so we can probably skip through that one, but I think we're at a good time where we should maybe take a little break and, and hear from our sponsor and uh, after we listen to that sponsor piece, we'll then jump back and why don't we go through our top six tips of, uh, you know, what to avoid and what to do in the context of a spousal? How does that sound? Sounds great. This episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast is sponsored by the Canadian Immigration Institute one of the best sources of video content on Canadian immigration to help you navigate your way through the Canadian immigration process. Head on over to the YouTube channel where there's tons of video content and you can join Mark, yes, myself, in a number of live video streams, Q&As, all designed to help you navigate your way through this crazy Canadian immigration process. When you're done there, like and subscribe and then head on over to the Canadian Immigration Institute.com where you can find all those awesome DIY courses that I've been talking about. Thank you, Canadian Immigration Institute. You are the sponsor of this amazing little podcast. All right, so we are back again, and uh, I, Alicia and I have had the chance to kind of go through, and well, she's identified some of the most important factors that she looks at in determining, um, with together with with her clients, whether or not to go with the in Canada process or the spouse of common law partner class or the outside family class options, and so. Any uh, last kind of parting comments on that topic before we shift to our top six awesome tips to avoid disaster and spousals? <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe I'll just summarize 
Immigration does give you a little bit of a snapshot of this. So if you look at the guide, the 5289 guide for spouses, it does have a little blurb under choose the class of application. And the way they summarize it is apply under the family class if the person you want to sponsor lives outside of Canada. And if the person you want to sponsor currently lives with you in Canada, but doesn't plan to stay in Canada while the application is being processed, which might be 12 months, then probably apply under the family class. They also say to apply under the family class if you need to appeal, if you want to have that right of appeal, or if you're sponsoring a conjugal partner or a dependent child. And then the way they categorize whether to apply under the spouse or common law partner in Canada class is that, first of all, both people have to be in Canada and they have to have valid immigration status in Canada. There are some exceptions, but that probably is another podcast in and of itself. It is. And then there's also, if you want to apply for that open spousal work permit, then again, that has to be the spouse or common law partner in Canada class. Good. And you can see immigration does try to make it easier for people. But as we shift to our top six, uh, six tips here, I can tell you that they're still cruel and heartless when it comes to these applications. And as we transition and we'll jump to number one here in just a second, and these tips are not in any particular order. They're just the ones that we've identified as being ones you should know about. But lately we're seeing a brutal trend. And that trend is with all of these backlogged applications that are all sitting in Mississauga because of the delays with uh, you know, the social distancing requirements and the inability for officers to process paper-based applications, they're now in the situation where they are trying to find any way they can to reduce that number in the queue and to, um, you know, to basically satisfy the minister's directive that they need to get on this stuff. And now they very clearly are instituting a very one-touch policy. So if there is anything missing within your application, it will get returned. And uh, within, um, you know, because of what we're seeing right now, and I think a lot of people, Alicia, can go to the WholeThingLaw.com website and look at our collaborative review model. But the reality is we help our clients in a collaborative fashion when they've maybe submitted their applications on their own. Maybe they've used a different representative or whatever it is, and it's gotten returned. And now they're trying to figure out, oh, I do not want this to happen again. And so one of the services that we offer is a collaborative review with them where we take a look at their whole application before they submit it. They're still controlling the whole process, but they can retain us um, and we can uh, go through everything together with them versus a screen share session and uh, just give them peace of mind when they're sending it off that they haven't missed something else. Because as you are well aware, uh, just like just like uh, you know any immigration lawyer that's been practicing for, for a long time, just because they chose one thing to put on that deficiency list when they send it back, that doesn't mean that it's the only one that, that could potentially get your application returned. And, and with the time that's passed, documents expire, there's all kinds of things that need to be addressed. And so, uh, yeah, go to wholefeelaw.com, click on book a consult, and we can help you with that process if you are in that situation and you've just had your application returned. All right, top six tips. What's number one? So, just as you said, Mark, the, the new policy to try to process a bunch of applications and get through that backlog, it's for sure a risk. If there's anything wrong with your application, it's probably going to get returned to you. But it's also an opportunity because if you do absolutely everything correctly and everything's on there and every box is checked, then you might actually have your application processed because they have a push right now to try to get applications finalized. So one of the first tips would be to follow that document checklist 
absolutely forensically to the T. So make sure that every single box is checked or that you write not applicable next to any box on the checklist that doesn't apply to your situation. So follow that checklist and use it as your organizing document. So as you compile all of your forms and your supporting documents, you're gonna put them exactly in the order that's listed on that document checklist. And that way, when an immigration officer opens up your file, it's absolutely clear that everything is complete. It's interesting when I, you know, in the years that I've practiced, <clears throat> there was a time when immigration would, if there was something that they felt was missing or needed to be updated, you know, that was more ancillary to the processing of the application. It didn't really form like a, you know, really the, the uh, um, well, based on the, the uh, immigration regulations, what constituted a complete application. They would send a, um, a deficiency letter to you and say, hey, please note that, you know, this needs to be updated or there's some missing information. Please provide it. We'll give you 60 days or something. Boy, those days are long, long gone. And so when you identify how important it is to follow that checklist, you know, that checklist now becomes the lifeblood of your application. And the easier you can make it for that officer, the more likely you're going to be successful. And it's as simple as that. Um, Are there any specific parts of the checklist that you think, um, you know, the listeners should really, really pay close attention to? Yeah, so in terms of how to choose your class of application, that's something that's important. And that's listed at point five of that document checklist. And so it'll tell you how to send your application and which category you're applying under. So pay really close attention to that because you make your choice of whether you're applying under the family class or the spouse or common law partner in Canada class by actually checking off a box in that document checklist. And on that document checklist itself, it will give you the address to mail your application. They have a mailing address and they also have a courier address. And so this is one of the other pro tips is make sure that you keep a complete copy of your application. When you are ready to send it, you have scanned or photocopied the entire thing, including the photos. Take them out of the little envelope and make sure that you um, scan them or take a copy of them so that you've got proof of what it is that you sent in. And I always recommend that clients courier their application. It's getting into the holiday season right now and there are many, many packages flying around and you need to have a tracking number. And I usually also recommend that you get signature so that you can make sure that you know that that application actually gets delivered. Perfect. Okay. Number two, what have you got for our our tip, our pro tip number two? So pro tip number two also does relate to that checklist and it's at the page seven and eight of the checklist, but it's looking at other proof of the relationship to the sponsor. And so they categorize it as, you know, are you guys currently living together? No or yes. And you've got to make sure that you provide all of the evidence necessary to back up proof of contact and proof of cohabitation, depending on which category applies to you. So there's a few different checkboxes and you've got to make sure that you include each of those types of evidence in order for your application to continue to be processed. If you don't have that evidence, then it's quite likely that you're going to get your application returned to you. So I'm going to jump in and address number three, which is when you feel a document doesn't apply. So what do you do in your applications, Alicia, 
with resolving this situation where something says that it's, you know, maybe it's optional in the document checklist even, but you feel that something doesn't apply in your situation. Like, how do you address that? Because as we've talked about, if immigration, if an officer sees that something is missing that they think should be in there, they're just going to return the package. So tip number three, what, how do you deal with that? Yeah. So on the document checklist itself, I would say put not applicable or N slash A. And then when you're getting to the spot in your application where you'd normally have included that item on the document checklist, actually slide in a blank piece of paper or a piece of paper where you type right or handwrite in big Sharpie, this does not apply. And you put the reason, the link to the legislation or um, the specific argument that you have about why that section doesn't apply. So that when an officer is going through your application package, it's there isn't a gap. There's nothing missing. There's something that you've written to address in the spot where they're expecting to see it that that document doesn't apply to you. All right. So I had a consult just the other day, and this is tip number four. <laughs> Guess why they got their application returned? Guess. Maybe they didn't have the photos. <laughs> This is awesome. See, understand none of this is totally scripted, you guys. What I was leading to was a certain Schedule A with a wonky way of finishing it off at the end. Ah, uh, the validation and the signature. <laughs> Yay! All right. Just, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Maybe you can talk a little bit about that massive problem that people are experiencing now. Sure. So some of the forms that you're going to be filling out, and there are a number of the forms, and some of them are validated through the form itself. So when you complete that form, it's going to give you a barcode. If you're not able to get that barcode, um, it can be a problem. But if you make sure that you complete the form and it does actually validate and give you that barcode, then some of the forms you actually have to type in your name and the date in order for it to validate. But the the guide so there's two guides there's the complete guide and then there's the basic guide the guide tells you that on that form when you validated it and you've had to type in your name in order to get the validation you also have to physically print the form and sign it in ink next to the typed name and mark's client i think had his application returned because there wasn't an ink signature next to that type signature yeah. Another thing that I think is absolutely ridiculous and so idiotic is the concept of a wet signature. Like in the world we're in now, it just, it boggles my mind. But immigration is using that as a reason to return. And in this case, this client had filed their own application and came back and we looked at the reason why it got refused and, you know, there was no room to argue. Like we couldn't go back and complain that it was unjust or otherwise. Although, yes, we could it was clearly on the on the document checklist that they were to sign beside the printed name. And uh, yeah, I remember a time, Alicia, not too many years ago when that form, the background declaration form, did not require a signature. You know, we, yeah. we validated it. We, we uploaded it um, through, the, through the portal or however they wanted us to send it back and there wasn't a signature required. And I think it's just stupid that they're sending them back for this reason. But hey, what? It's a pretty fast way to keep those processing down, uh, processing times down, and to uh, and to cull this big backlog of paper-based applications that are taking their their time um, going through the adjudication process. Okay, yeah. so signatures, <laughs> and obviously on the checklist itself, right, Alicia? There is a very clear guideline that tells you 
you know, this, whether the sponsor or the principal applicant, you know, which forms they need to sign and you can go through and check off all those boxes and make sure you fall through. And that's designed to help try and protect people from this outcome. Yeah. So yeah, at the very end of the checklist, page 10, it actually lists each spot where the sponsor has to sign and where the principal applicant has to sign. And sometimes on one form, you even have to sign in a couple places. So make sure to follow that carefully. Yeah. Don't be lazy is what we're saying here. You have to be vigilant. You have to read everything. And, uh, you know, what you put in is what you're going to get out. And if you just try to throw it together and submit it fast, and that also goes with who you choose as your representative, you better make sure that they care about it as much as you do, because the slightest thing is going to result in a get a kickback. Okay, so we've covered the importance of following the checklist with forensic level of detail. We've covered um, the the that great care needs to be taken with the supplementary proof of, of relationship and that you actually put information in that can help to support the genuineness. We've got number three was that, uh, that if something doesn't apply, then tell them it doesn't apply and provide an explanation. Number four was the importance of signatures. And now number five, back to the one that you addressed before. <laughs> um, uh, so yes, number five is also the photos and yes. there's two different ways that photos have to be submitted for the application. One are the photos for the permanent residence applicant themselves, so those mugshot photos. Um, make sure to follow the guidelines on how big the photo dimensions need to be, the resolution of those photos, um, the expression and the background and all that. So make sure that when you have your spouse go to a photographer, that they carry those photo instructions with them and that they're followed. And you can actually measure those little photos and make sure that they're the proper dimensions because I've actually had immigration return clients applications because the photos were a few millimeters off and it's just heartbreaking for them um, when they applied on their own and they come to us and they're trying to figure out why that it, it was refused and the photos were a few millimeters off so that's one thing the other thing is when you're doing photos as proof of relationship make sure that you follow those instructions to not just put in a whole bunch of photos um, you're not going to get those photos back so usually they should be good quality color copies, but you also need to put in on the photos who's in the photo, where the photo was taken, and uh, a little bit of a, a chronological relationship progression. So you're going to have the place where the photo was taken, the date, and the people in the photo starting kind of at the beginning of the relationship as it progresses, and then more recently. Exactly. And we probably could end with, you know, the top five tips um, because number six, you, you address slightly in the beginning, which, you know, of our top six list was the importance, once again, of making sure that you have a copy of everything and, and before you submit it. And one of the things I want to emphasize is that make a copy of all of your application after you've signed everything, after you've paid the fee, which is a whole, we could add fees on there. But <laughs> when you, when make sure that you have, when you're making that copy, it is exactly the document, the package that you're putting in that envelope. And then as Alicia has already mentioned, make sure that you're couriering this and that there's a signature on the other end. And why? Because things can get lost. And there's nothing worse than calling up IRCC after seven months and saying, I haven't received any confirmation that you've got my package. And IRCC said, and then immigration says, um, we never received it, right? And then so who's to blame? Did the mail lose it? Um, did did IRCC, because of their massive you know, processing center, somehow get it mixed up? And we all have stories 
I remember once a client, we were finalizing the permanent resident application and we sent in the passports and um, the original passports for, you know, to finalize everything. And immigration called me and said, hey, um, you didn't include the passports with your application. And I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. I know where this is going. And uh, you might want to check a lot around your office to see if somehow you've, you know, failed to include it. And I said, are you guys serious? I have a scanned copy of every single thing that we included and the passports were in, were in there. I can try, you know, I can guarantee that my office doesn't have nearly the number of files that you guys do. So you may want to just take a little look around your office there and see if you can find it there and then let me know. And of course they reached out and said, oh, we've looked, we can't see it here. So my client had to go get new passports. And then by the time we got the passports back, we were just ready to put them in the, you know, well, actually we did curry them off. I get a call and guess who the call was from? <laughs> IRCC confirming that they had located the passports. And I said, well, that's nice. Um, my clients have already submitted it. So I would request that you submit, return the old passports as well as the new one with the visa to me. And then, you know, they never volunteered this, but I pried and I said, where were the passports? And they confessed that they had sent them off to another client, um, someone completely different. And then, of course, when oh, they got no. the wrong passports back, they then notified immigration and, oh, and then no. they came back to us. So aside from the confidentiality and all that kind of stuff that was somewhat breached there, um, you know, these things happen. And, you know, we, you know, it's frustrating because immigration won't allow us to hold them to an absolute standard, but yet they do for us. And uh, I think there's a little bit of a double standard there, but that's a different, a different discussion for a different day. But those are the top six tips. So Anything, uh, Alicia, that you'd like to add as we wrap things up? Sure. I have two other ones. Um, one yeah. is on the fees. So mm -hmm. it does give you an option to pay the application fee alone or to pay the application fee plus the right of landing fee. And I normally recommend to my clients to pay both at the same time if you, if you possibly can, because if they have to pause the application to then send a notice that the sponsor has to pay the landing fee in addition to the initial processing fee, it slows down your application. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing that I was thinking of as Mark was telling his horror story there was that immigration has new form versions that come out all the time. And so if by the time, especially if you're looking at a family class sponsorship where you've had to have your spouse overseas sign everything and you're waiting for the mail to come and then you've got to sign it and then submit it all to immigration during that process sometimes the form changes so there's a new version of the form and depending on the immigration officer that you get that application might get returned if you've used an outdated version of the form so just make sure before you send everything off that you're using the most current version of the forms if at all possible and there you go see this is, this is the problem that I have with my staff. This is the problem that I have with the other lawyers I work with. I had a beautiful top five list of tips and then it became <laughs> six and then lo and behold, seven and eight. So all of my nice lead-ins and that's what you get. See, lawyers, those darn immigration lawyers that actually care and are trying to help people. Boy, I don't know. I don't know what this world is coming to. <laughs> just too many tips <laughs> awesome thank you so much Alicia this has been wonderful and uh, I know that the listeners are, uh, received a ton of value out of this 
Um, once again, I'll just remind everyone that you can just jump over to HolthyLaw.com, click on book a consult. And if you've recently gotten your application returned and you're panicking now, worried that the next time you try to submit it, that there's going to be something else wrong, reach out to us. Let us know. We've got our collaborative review model. You can go to the website and read all about it. We love it. It's an awesome way of working with our clients, and we truly feel this is the best way of doing it. And uh, so, yeah, we'd love to hear from you and love to help you in any way. Um, Other than that, Alicia, thank you so much for joining me, and I'm sure we'll be back again to talk about something else in the future. Thanks so much, Mark. It was a pleasure talking. All right. Take care, everyone. See you later. And we both wish you guys all the best as you navigate this crazy world that we call Canadian immigration. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Yeah.